C.S. Lewis is going to say it like this. Um, Friendship is born at the moment one person looks to the next and says, uh, you too? I thought I was the only one. All right, so I'm about to have a you too, or I hope to give you all a you too moment as I let you uh, into a little bit of my story being very vulnerable. And so I'm going to share about the time. Um, In the not so recent past, while I was still a pastor, um, that I cussed out somebody else's kids. (laughs) No U2s in here. Okay, all right, we'll move on. Um, January 2016, I was uh, making a pit stop off by Lenox Mall on my way home. So um, we were eight months, I was eight months removed from the third church plant that I started in 10 years. Uh, I was nine and a half months removed from burying my brother. Uh, But After he died, it was six weeks until the church launched, and I was under the assumption um, that the best way to process my grief uh, was to convince myself that I was healthy by helping everybody else get their life together. So I'm nine months, or nine and a half months removed from his uh, death, and I'm making a pit stop off at the mall to take back these shoes. I just got done leading chapel for the Texas A&M men's basketball team, and I talked to them about grief and hope and how our stories take us from there to here, um, and um, I, I did an incredible job, right? So uh, normally I'm not that self-absorbed, but that day I was so proud of how quickly I conquered and moved past my grief. It was a hurdle, I jumped through it, and I was okay, and... Um, or so I thought, right? So I'm waiting on a parking spot and uh, people back out of the spot. And right when folks back out of the spot, this like little tan car zooms in and takes the spot that I've been waiting for. Mm. <laughs> I heard the, uh, listen. So immediately, I, 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 yo, 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 immediately, right? I get so hot, right? I, I, you know, I go white knuckled behind this beige steering wheel, which lets you a little bit into my state of mind. Do you know how hard it is for somebody of my complexion to go (laughs) white-knuckled, right? I was angry. So I look, and I beat my horn, I honk my horn, and the folks in the car say, yo, chill, we were just going to pull up in this spot and back up so that we could leave. And so, so I feel fine, you know, calm down. The melanin feels free to return back to my knuckles, and Things are good, and I wait, and I wait, and I wait. So I start to inch up, and as I start to inch up, um, I look out my window, and all I can see is these group of kids scurrying out of the back seat, laughing at me. My drum's still a pastor at this time, so I rolled down the window. (laughs) I aim my eyes at these kids, and I cuss them out, unfortunately, right? Um, 
What was more shocking than the words that I used was the fluency that I retained. Right? I took four years of Spanish in high school, and I lost it very quickly. Here, I hadn't cussed anybody out in 15 years, and it just flowed, right? <laughs> Stringing together phrases like a macaroni necklace. It was wild. And immediately after I was done, I was like, I'm not okay. Pick up my phone. I call my wife. I call my two best friends at the time, and I just say, "Hey, y'all, um, I am not okay." And I expected them to like scold me, but instead, right, their gracious words just reached up, grabbed me by the shoulders, and massaged all the anxiety right out. And what they said was, um, "Oh, we know that you're not okay. <laughs> um, we've just been waiting on you to say that you're not okay." And it was at that point that I had this interesting um, experience with my grief that um, they would no longer let me hide my unhealth behind making other people healthy. And so my church gave me this sabbatical, all right? So it was a month where... For me, it was the first time in my adult life that I didn't have to lead the church that I was in. So I had a month where I didn't preach, didn't care for anybody else. And so what I do, you know, I, I was back in my study. Um, it's a 200-square-foot disconnected shed on the back side of my house. I know this may not translate. I live in Atlanta. In, in Atlanta, we have uh, these things called um, extra space. Right? So a space that, I mean, it's there just to read, right? I don't have to live, shower, or cook or anything else in there. So I'm sitting there in my study. And as I'm reading, I slow down, um, and I come across words in the book of Ecclesiastes that were the most hopeful words I had read in my adult life. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, these were the most hopeful words that I read, it says this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? There's other translations that'll say meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, and those words help to lift me out of my depression. And you may say, you must have been down bad if those words did it, right? <laughs> it's like, no, the reason why those words did it for me was because I found myself at a place where I thought the reason that I was depressed was primarily because of the tragedy that I faced. I thought that my tragedy ruined me. And here, I come across this, where there was somebody else that came to the same conclusion I did. I looked, and I'm like, yo, you too? I thought I was the only one. The difference was this. Uh, if you know anything about the book of Ecclesiastes, it's written from the perspective of somebody that at least wants you to think of Solomon when you read it, right? The guy that was wiser than anybody that lived. A king who didn't just live the life of his dreams, he lived the life of your dreams collectively. 
And so he came to the same conclusion I did. I was depressed in the valley. This guy is depressed on the mountaintop of mountaintops. And it was at that point that I said, oh, wait a minute. Maybe depression isn't circumstantial. And if depression isn't circumstantial, maybe hope isn't either. Maybe, ah, uh uh-huh, that lively crowd. Maybe joy isn't either. Maybe nothing about my life has to change, and everything about my life can change. Maybe tragedy doesn't ruin us. Maybe hopelessness does. And as you go through this book, one of the things that you find is there's this guy on this journey trying to hold on to hope, and what he realizes is that in the world that we live in, hope is very slippery. It's hard to hold on. I used to wake up in my grief every morning feeling like, is today going to be the day that I conquer it, the day that I finally get back to normal, that I spent those first nine months trying to sprint towards a finish line. And every day, I never quite made it there. And as time went on, I eventually got to a place where I realized oh, wait a minute, maybe the finish line is further than I thought. So I'm nine years in and I still haven't reached one because maybe a finish line doesn't exist. I ran cross country in high school. I had to to hoop and to play ball. And I started and the first day, I actually didn't know how long we were running. And they said it was a race. So I got off the blocks and I started to sprint. And then they're like, oh, no, 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 it's not that kind of a race. It's three miles. And instantly, I dropped my arms, I stopped pumping, and I just started walking. Because I said, if it's going to be that long, then maybe the goal is not to finish quick. Maybe the goal is to enjoy the company of the people that I have to run alongside with that don't want to be here any more than I do. I think so often when we think about grief and suffering and heartache, you try to do the same thing that I do, and you try to sprint to a finish line, not realizing that God's saying to you, yo, yo, it's not that kind of a race. Why don't you slow your pace and let's walk through this thing together? One of the things that you learn is once you finally learn that grief doesn't have an expiration date, that grief doesn't have the finish line that you think that it does, you start to realize that maybe the goal's not a quick finish. Maybe the goal is something else. What grief does is it's this invitation into an ongoing conversation with you and the people sitting next to you and you and God. Here are the opening words of that conversation. This is where I lost 10 o'clock. This is where they went quiet for the rest of the time. The opening words that grief says to us is this. um, I just want you to know that everything in this world that you love, you will lose. That's not meant to make you sad. 
It's meant to make you sober. It's meant to remind you that you're not crazy. It's meant to make you a better, more present version of yourself. It's meant to, whenever you take these precious moments in life for granted, grief is just going to come up behind you, tap you on the shoulder, and whisper in your ear, everything in this world that you love, you will lose. These moments are as precious as they are fragile. So instead of being distracted with your nose buried in your work or in your phone, Make sure your nose is nestled in your daughter. Make sure your nose is involved deep in conversations with the people that you love. Because grief, with not having an expiration date, is actually worse than you think. Time is not going to heal all these wounds. Time is just going to make life a little bit more confusing. And so what I've learned throughout all of this is, one, grief is disorienting. Tragedy is just the seed. Grief is the tree that grows from it. And when grief comes, what you find is you lack words, right? You just feel like, I don't really know how to share it. And what you lack in words, you make up for with an abundance of guilt, That when grief hits, you feel guilty about laughing. You feel guilty about crying. That you feel like you should be more sad. You you just lack words. You have an abundance of guilt. And all that leads is to you and I feeling stuck. We don't want to walk anywhere with God or with anybody else. We want them to go ahead and we're just going to stay here. And as we stay still, life goes on. What I want to do is I want to give you some handlebars, something to hold on to, so that when you feel stuck, I think these three truths will help to pull you along, all right? So that when life moves on, you don't feel left behind, but you feel like we can go on. Last thing, and we'll get to our text in Ecclesiastes 3 very, very briefly. Um, Once we stop thinking of grief as a journey or a race, we start to realize that uh, it's probably more helpful to think of grief as a language. Where the goal is not to finish, the goal is just to become fluent, right? So if humanity were a country, grief would be the official language. It's the reason why you struggle to get people to come to family reunions, but every time you bury somebody, you have a mini-family reunion. It's the reason why you can make small talk conversation in the hallway with a bunch of folks, with your best friends, but then when you pass by somebody in the hallway and they speak of a tragedy or a grief or a loss that they went through, that you've gone through, you immediately say, you too, I thought I was the only one. It's like being in a foreign country And somebody speaks English, immediately your ears are tuned up. And it's like, I don't know them, but I've got to talk to them. But even though grief is the official language of humanity, it's it's nobody's native tongue. We all have to learn how to speak it. And what makes it so hard is that there are two dialects. One we're familiar with, one that we're unfamiliar with. Here's the one that we're familiar with, tangible grief. 
I lose somebody, somebody I know and I love, they die. There is a funeral, there is a casket, there's a burial. My tears sprint down my cheeks, chasing their fallen body into the ground. And people that are surrounding me look, and they can connect my falling tears to their fallen body. And they say they're grieving. Let's support them with hugs and handshakes and casseroles, if that's your sort of thing. But then there's ambiguous grief. Even if you've never heard this phrase, you're going to leave out here and be like, oh, snap, I was grieving. Ambiguous grief is this, the death of a dream, the death of a relationship, the death of a marriage, the diagnosis of a parent with dementia or Alzheimer's, where even though they're still here, You feel the loss because you have to talk about them in the past tense. Those are deaths with no funerals, funerals with no caskets, and you can't control the tears falling down your cheeks in the same way, but people look around you and they try to connect the falling tears with a casket and they say, I don't get why you're sad and you're not surrounded with hugs and handshakes and casseroles, and you feel by yourself because nobody speaks that dialect of grief. It can lead us to feeling stuck. What I love is that for those of us that don't have words, Ecclesiastes gives us language. For those of us that have an abundance of guilt, over saying things that we feel, Ecclesiastes gives us permission. I don't know if you grew up in a household like I did. My parents were super Christian, so there were a lot of like bad words that we couldn't say that I grew up and I found out, oh, wait a minute, um, shut up is actually not a curse word. (laughs) Now listen, do you know the freedom that I felt when I'm like, yo, I finally got permission to express myself. Some of us feel like giving God our honest thoughts on how he's stewarding our lives is some bad word, and what we need is permission to say, yo, I finally have permission to be able to share what's on my heart. For those of us that feel stuck, Ecclesiastes 3 helps us to move on. My sermon in a sentence is this, when it comes to the lives that we live, our lives are meant to be managed, not manipulated. We spend so much of our time, our waking efforts, our job search, our dating relationships, trying to manipulate our lives to become the thing that we hope that it would be. But what we need to learn is that the life that we live It's not meant to be manipulated. It's meant to be managed. These are the three handlebars, and I'll move through them very, very quickly. The very first one is this. Um, This is going to be the best news that you hear all day, and that's this. Uh, You are not in control. You're not in control. You are a first responder. You're not a script writer. A first responder is somebody that shows up onto a scene, and the scene is chaotic. The scene is full of a bunch of mess, and their only role 
is to assess the situation and try to do what is best and necessary for that scene. Script writers get a chance to create whatever scene comes to, to mind. We spend so much of our time trying to be script writers in our life and not realizing that, no, 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 you're not in control. You are a first responder. Look here at Ecclesiastes 3, starting at verse 1, and I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 8, and it's going to be very annoying as I emphasize the same word, trying to make a point, but it's my attempt to try to make a point. There is an occasion for everything. And a time for every activity under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Did you notice the word that was emphasized over and over and over? That was a rhetorical question, but thank you very much. (laughs) Gold stars for my friend here. Time. 29 times in eight verses, you get the word time. It begins with this. There's a time to be born and a time to die, and that serves as kind of an umbrella to show you. No, no. This is all of what takes place in life. These extremes, these good things and these bad things, there's a time for all of these things. But the reason why it brings it up and it says it like that is to help you and I see that life is all about your responses to all of these things, and control is an illusion. The reason why it moves so quick into, uh, uh, with those extremes is because that's what life does. Life changes lanes without putting on the turn signal. And things go very quickly from laughing to mourning to being born to dying. And the reason why I bring that up is because this, I want you to know this, um, Changing a clock is not the same thing as changing time. Daylight savings before phones came out, you had to get up and you had to change the clock. It would be foolish for somebody to think because you changed the clock, that means that you actually have control of time. You don't have control of time. You just manage the clocks that are in your house to help you tell time. The reason why I bring that up is because when you get on this list, so many of us spend so much of our lives trying to live on one side of the list. We want our life to be birth and laughing and dancing and joy and embracing. 
And we have to embrace, no, 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 look. You are not in control. It is a sobering and a sad reality. A truth that's so sobering that it could take such a live 1130 crowd and make them quiet. It's sobering to realize that I actually don't have as much control over anything that takes place in the next moment as I think. And you can't make seasons of suffering and heartache. You can't just turn them into seasons of joy by laughing and smiling and ignoring what's actually going on in your world. You can't change seasons of suffering any more than you can change actual seasons by changing your wardrobe. I don't care how much you love shorts and flip-flops. Wear them in December if you want to, but you're not changing anything about the season that you're in. Um, all you're doing is living in denial of the fact that you don't have the control that you think that you do. What I love about this list is it reminds us of two things. The seasons that we find ourselves in, are unpredictable. They don't work nice and neatly on a three-month cycle like our seasons. They come and they go. But in the same way that they're not predictable, they're not permanent either. Trouble, however bad, in this life is temporary at best. What I don't mean is short. I don't want you to assume that I'm using temporary and short as synonyms, what I am saying is that there is going to be an end date. And what this balance does is it keeps us from being overly optimistic. It keeps us from assuming that the heartache that we're in now is just going to get better with time. That if you live like that, just overly optimistic, naively about how the future is going to be as if every input that you give in life is going to match the outputs, you're setting yourself up for a life of despair. You're holding God hostage to outcomes that he's never promised. And that's like waiting in the cold and the rain for a bus that's never coming. But the answer isn't to be overly pessimistic waiting for the other shoe to drop. If being overly optimistic is you setting yourself up for despair, being overly pessimistic is you cementing your feet in despair. No, this is something different. It's reminding us that even though seasons fluctuate, the person that understands that they're not in control can have a sense of joy because they're not marrying their joy or their peace to circumstances. Your circumstances aren't elevator buttons. Promotion, birth, marriage, meant to take you to top floors. Heartache, sickness, chronic illness, meant to take you to bottom floors. 
The goal is just to be aware. The good news is this. You aren't in control. And that's going to be some of the best news that you've heard all day. Because once you embrace the fact that you aren't in control, you have to wrestle with the fact that somebody else is. Oh, you aren't in control, but here's the good news. God has complete control. I love watching movies, all types. So I uh, got here yesterday morning, spent a large part of the day in the hotel on TNT and TBS watching whatever movies, right, they throw on there. Um, There's an interesting thing that takes place, right? You can watch a movie and be so immersed in the details of what goes on in the story and you find yourself in such great suspense, not knowing what's going to take place and feeling anxious. And then you realize who the director of the movie is. You realize that you spent 30 minutes of your life stressing over a Tyler Perry movie. And it's like, oh, I'm familiar with his work. The light-skinned dude with good hair that's a mechanic is going to come in and save the day. I'm not stressing because I know how all of this is going to end out. Look, because I took my eyes off of the present circumstances and I lifted them up and I put them on the director. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, it's, oh, life, there's a time, there's a time, there's, there's a time. But look at what takes place in 3, verse 9. What does the worker gain from his struggles? He's saying, I'm frustrated, I'm mad. I have seen the task that God has given the children of Adam to keep them occupied. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from the beginning. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good uh, life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. There's a lot here, but the most important thing is that as he takes his life off of reflecting on the fact that he has to respond to the times, he looks and he's going to use these very active words. There's somebody in control who has given us a task, who has made things appropriate in its time, who has put eternity on our hearts. When it's saying he put eternity on our hearts, God made us thinking beings, people that want to see the conclusion of things, people that are narrative-based, that want to know the story and the purpose behind the things that we go through. This is why when we go through things in life, we start to talk about them as good things and bad things. That's why we try to stay on one side of the line of a Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, and avoid the bad side. But with God, the person that's in complete control, the chef, what takes place is God is not as reductionistic as we are. God doesn't flatten things into good or bad. He's got a different rubric that he's using to evaluate your life, and it's things that he would say are necessary and unnecessary. I was 27 years old before I found out that tuna fish was made with mayonnaise. I hate mayonnaise. I always have. I always will. Um, 27 years old, I'm married. I come into the kitchen, and my wife is making tuna fish sandwich. I love tuna fish sandwich. There's a bowl. There's tuna. She's starting to mix it in, you know. 
celery, she's chopped that up, you know, the salt, the pepper, the other things. And then what she does is she reaches for a can of mayo. And I'm like, no, 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 Sean, you know how much I hate that. Why are you going to mess up something that I enjoy? Tuna is good, mayo is bad. And she said, no, 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 John, first chill, two, no, no, no. You're thinking in terms of good and bad. I'm thinking of necessary and unnecessary. I know you don't like mayo, but no, no, no. You don't like mayo alone. I'm not just going to give you a mayo sandwich. I'm going to mix it in with this one thing. And after I mix it, after I'm done, you taste it. And then you tell me if you think it was necessary or not. It's so hard for us to walk with God sometimes because we want to taste his unfinished batter and tell him that he's a bad cook. But God's saying is like, no, 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 no. The things that you think are unnecessary are the things that are the actual ingredients. Look, where it's all going to work out at the end. Notice what it says here. God puts eternity on our hearts so that we won't know what comes after him. We don't know how things will wrap up, but he does. That's insight to try to help you and I see, look, and I'm going to say this as sensitive as I know how. When it comes to suffering and hard times, your hindsight is much more valuable than your insight. You seeing how God has completed the story is much more valuable than your ability to decipher what he's doing at the moment. God works in mysterious ways. And you, my friend, are not Sherlock Holmes. You're not going to figure it out. God's saying, no, no, no. I don't need you to solve the crime. I need you to trust me. We don't know the good that will come out of the heartaches that we're in right now. All we know is that good will come out of the heartaches that we're in right now. And so instead of spending our time trying to strengthen our insight, it's our job to strengthen our hindsight. Sherlock Holmes, I love reading those novels. They're written from the perspective of John Watson. John Watson is Sherlock Holmes' bestie. John Watson doesn't solve any of the crime. Sherlock Holmes solves all of the crimes. There's this one crime that takes place here. A woman walks in with an impossible case. John Watson reflects and writes in his journal. I had no clue what to do. But what he said is, I learned not to stress out. He said, I had become so accustomed to Sherlock's invariable success that the very thought of him failing had ceased to enter my mind. He's saying, I spent so much time with him that I had no clue how he was going to do it. I had no um, assurances that the time frame would be quick. All I know is that if I walk with him someday, it'll all make sense. 
And you may be here and be like, but John, how can I be joyful? How can I walk with God and be joyful when I don't know the specifics about what he's doing in the grief and the pain and the loss that he allowed? Here's how you walk with him. You remind yourself of two things. One is this, knowledge about how everything will play out has never been a prerequisite to joy. And ignorance of how things will play out has never been this thief of joy. We do not have to know how. We've been brought in to know who. And you say, no, no, how can I be assured? How can I really make sure that this will work out? And the way that you can know is that God has done it before. The worst event to take place in human history was God looking at the grief, the pain, and the sorrow of the world in which we live. He sends his son down, not to live the life of a Solomon high on the hill, but to live the life of somebody that was constantly accosted with grief, pain, sorrow, so much so that the Bible will say that Jesus is a man of sorrow acquainted with grief, or he was a man of sorrow fluent in grief. People could talk to him and he could talk with them and he could carry on a conversation on the deepest of human levels. And he did it. People put their hope in him and their trust in him. And as they try to use their insight into what God was going to do in the world through him, you had about 120 people that are like, this is the Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world who's going to set things right. And while they were preparing for a time of dancing, they find themselves at a funeral, his funeral. Jesus died. They look around and they say, God, I don't know why you would do this. This is the worst thing to take place, that men would kill God in the flesh, the person that came to redeem. But do you know what took place? For the people that took their eyes off of the scenario and looked up at the director, they were reminded of the former movies that he put out. You can take Isaac, who was the promised son, who was as good as dead, but there was a substitute and he experienced the resurrection of sorts. You can take Joseph, sold out by his brothers, left for dead. They thought that he was dead, only to be surprised by the fact that the one that they thought dead, the one that they sold out, was actually in power, and he changed and rearranged their future, and on and on and on. And so anybody that would look at the director could look at what went on and say, I haven't seen this movie before, but I've seen it before. In the resurrection, what God does is he shows us something different. If the world, regardless of creed, uh, gender, race, is united by the belief that everything in this world you love, you will lose, and that's something that unites all people, what Jesus does in the resurrection is he says, that's a great starting point. But what the resurrection shows us is that, oh, for anybody that believes in the Lord Jesus and 
what he did for us. Although his death on the cross was one of a kind, the resurrection was the first of its kind. So that you and I, we can feel hopeless, but we can never actually be hopeless. Why? Because Jesus conquered the most hopeless place to ever exist. It has baffled all of humanity from the beginning of time. And in Jesus, what we see is that resurrection is the source, not just of our faith, but our hope. So when we say tragedy ruins, tragedy doesn't ruin anybody, we realize it's impossible to outrun it. We can't outrun it any more than a dog can outrun its tail. But our hope is rooted in the fact that God doesn't just have complete control, God has perfect control. Look here at verse 14, and I'm just about done. Verse 14 says this, I know that everything God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. In script writing, there's this thing called notes. After somebody gives their first draft of a script, people read it and say, this is great, you got to add this. you got to take this away. There has never been a show created that doesn't have notes on some of the first drafts. What this is saying is God's saying, no, no, no. It's not just that God has complete control. It's that God has perfect control. No notes. No, everything that has gone on in our lives that he has allowed, um, God is not in the business of wasting events or space, or relationship, or loss, or grief. Charles Spurgeon's going to put it like this. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you are planted where you get but little. You are put there by the loving husbandman. Because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have placed you there. God is not in the business of wasting heartache or frivolously throwing it or allowing it on anybody. There's something that he's doing that we only get snapshots of. And as we get those snapshots, I feel like they're God's great kindnesses to remind us that he has perfect control. And our goal is to be patient with him and to be patient with one another as we walk through that. April 14th, 2015. I get the phone call that my brother um, had died, 32 years old, had three kids, five, three, and one, went to sleep in his car, didn't wake back up. I get the phone call. I'm the uh, middle child of a family of seven. And so I, after I got the phone call, I had to go down the list and call my mom, my dad, my three remaining brothers and sisters and tell them, Sam's dead. And you don't realize, right, like what that 
does when like people have questions and you don't have answers and you're just as sad, but you know, after I get off this call, I've got to make this call. And my next two years just felt like hell. April 14th felt like, God, why would you ever do this? There is no, you may do good 364 days out of the year, but April 14th is a blackout date for me. April 14th, 2017, um, two years after my brother died, I'm in the hospital um, with my daughter. Uh, my daughter was born a few days prior, uh, but she was born premature. So um, she was in an incubator 22 hours out of the day. She had tubes. She couldn't breathe on her own. We captured her first smile through the smudged incubator glass window. So it's April 14th, Good Friday, the two-year anniversary of my brother's death, and my wife lets me hold my daughter um, for the hour that she gets to be out before I have to drive back and preach. And so as I hold her, before I know it, the doctor comes and snatches her up out of my arms. And before I can protest, I turn around, and the doctor places her back inside of my arms but she's noticeably lighter. Um, she's lighter because he took out the breathing machine. And he said, John, today's the day that she's going to breathe on her own. Two years to the day, my brother took his final breath. My daughter takes her first unassisted breath. And it's on Good Friday. And I've got to go and tell a room full of people that tragedy doesn't ruin us hopelessness does, that God can turn a date that is the worst state into one of the best states. And I realized, oh, walking with God for these two years have been hell uh, because I've been impatient, because I haven't leaned into the fact that I don't have control. He has complete control, and he doesn't need any notes on his story. So, Lord, I'll wait. I'll trust my hindsight more than my insight. I don't know where God has you or the unique things that he's allowed to come your way. But I do want you to know none of it is wasted. And he's writing an incredible story that you'll have the privilege of telling one day on this earth or one day in eternity. But one day we'll agree with him. No notes. But until then, we stop sprinting through our grief and just settle into a nice walk and enjoy the company of a God who's crying with us in our sorrows and our tears. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the ways that you can and you have redeemed past pain. Lord, we thank you for the way that your Son swallowed pain and death and metabolized it into life and resurrection and hope, Lord. I, God, I pray that even if we don't see a way forward, that you would remind us of the story that you've written for your son, and you would remind us that you are great God. You don't have any favorite children. So what you've done 
for our Lord and Savior. What you've done for people that we've seen and provided hope in the worst of situations you can do for us, God. Fill us with hope. Give us the grace to hold on to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.